All right, Craig spoke on the Old Testament last week. I wasn't here, but uh, today we're going to do uh, some New Testament, and we're going to ask four questions as we go. Um, you got them there. What is the point of the text of three passages? What is the text? Where does the text appear in the biblical storyline? And how does the text point to or view Christ the Savior? And then most importantly, well, not most importantly, Christ the Savior is most importantly, but then secondly is how does it apply to us? So if you've if you got your Bibles, let's go to Luke, everybody, and then we'll also go to the Colossians passage as a whole. Luke 4, 1 through 13, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. Keep that in mind there, because we're going to come back to that later. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was wed, led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted. Another key. Jesus, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil continued to tempt him. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all authority and glory that has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem. And the continuing temptation, the devil comes at him. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he commands his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, we're tempted. Jesus was tempted. Watch what Jesus does. Jesus answered him and said, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. And when the devil had ended every temptation parted from him until an opportune time. So what's the point of the text? Well, let, let me ask a question. How did Adam do? Adam, the first man, was created perfect by God. He lived in a perfect environment, and how did he do? Not so good, right? He plunged humanity into sin. How about Israel, God's chosen people? Specifically, God chose them drew them out of slavery, established them, at least tried to establish them. How did they do? They failed miserably too, right? How about Christ? How did Jesus do? How did Jesus do in regards to sin and temptation? So in your first note there, Jesus has proven to be faithful. Jesus has proven to be faithful to God by not giving in to temptation and sin. So Jesus Christ did what nobody else had done. Adam, Israel, us. So where does this biblical text come in the storyline? Well, obviously we're in the New Testament. Is this at the beginning, the middle, or the end? I heard the beginning, the end, and the middle. <laughs> so somebody's right. Uh, the temptation of Jesus happened at the very beginning of his, of his ministry. His three years of public ministry is, is just happening. So this text takes us right smack dab at the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry. So how does the text point to Christ? So typology. Christ is the antitype of Israel. Antitype, 
there is a person or a thing that represents the opposite of someone or something else. Okay, so, so Jesus Christ is the antitype of Israel. Israel, in the Old Testament, we read the Old Testament, and we see Israel fail and fail and sin and turn away from God and fail and fail and sin and turn away from God and go to idols and go through all kinds of things. If we want to know how our life looks, read the Old Testament and it will tell you what you do. Come to the New Testament, Jesus Christ comes on the scene and he, and he blows us away. Robin? Sure. Well, it, it, it's a person, antitype, it, it, I, I think I have this in your thing, don't I? Is a person or a thing that represents the opposite of someone or something else. Is that the opposite? Yeah, okay. So Jesus Christ is the antitype of Israel. He's the complete opposite. Israel failed in temptation of sin. Jesus Christ was 100% faithful. And, and um, by Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, you would think that the Jews would say, aha, we were wrong. But they don't. And that unbelief will continue in the New Testament. Who's got Acts 13, 46? So Acts is a transitional book. Anytime you read the book of Acts, think transition. Go from the gospel, and then we're, and after Acts, we're going to get all of the, not all of it, we're going to get most of the theology of the New Testament local church. So when you read Acts, just think transition. Uh, Acts 18, 6. So in Acts 13, the Jews are rejecting Jesus. In Acts 18, it continues. In Acts 28, 28. Praise God, right? <laughs> Praise God. The Jews rejected the gospel as a whole. And, and in, the, in the book of Acts, Paul warns them time and time. The Holy Spirit warns them time and time and time again. You've rejected the Messiah. We're going to the Gentiles. You've rejected the Messiah. We're going to the Gentiles. You've rejected the Messiah. We're going to the Gentiles. Uh, Acts 7, 51, 53. All right, so... This links Israel's denial of their Messiah to a few things. That passage, a little hard to see. You underline that, go there sometime. Resisting the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I went to uh, uh, No Regrets yesterday. Wasn't that amazing, guys? Who were, they were, they were there? Um, the English guy. Briscoe. Did a did amazing job on speaking about the Holy Spirit and and being filled with the Holy Spirit. But here, Israel's denial is 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 resisting of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to come back to that in our uh, lesson today. We're going to end with an amazing portion of the Scripture: persecuting the prophets. Do we persecute prophets? You ever had roast preacher for lunch? I know we have it at our house. It's delicious. No, just kidding. Um, rejection of the scriptures. The only way that we're going to grow into glory and to glory from one degree to another is by use of the scriptures. We need to do that. Man is unfaithful. Jesus Christ is faithful to an infinite degree. Praise God, right, everybody? So how do I apply this to my, to, to my life? What's our response? When I look back, when I look back at my salvation, I mean, I was saved. I was clueless about who Christ was. I mean, completely clueless. He was a common curse word to me. Wanted nothing to do with him. Didn't want him in my life. Just, gich. The only thing I knew about Christians is what they didn't do. Okay? 
then God saves my wife and transforms her. And I'm like, whoa, baby, come on over. You know, that drew me to Christ. And still, whoa, baby, come on over now. And even more so. But when I used to read the Old Testament, I would read the Old Testament. I'd be like, boy, how stupid can these guys be? I would read Judges and, and, and I just would think, man, I don't do that. Early in my Christian walk, actually for years. I would say in my heart, if I'd seen the Red Sea part, I'd never turn my back to stinking idols. I would say, if I saw water gush from a rock, if I saw water gush from a rock, I kind of figured it out, and I said, how much water would have to gush from that rock to, feed, to, to, to have two million people, along with their animals, be satisfied? Seven million gallons a day. Now, if I saw that, I would never turn my back on God. How about each person eats, according to Google, and they know everything, so each person eats an average of about a ton of food a year. Some of us a little more than others, okay? I would never question a God who rained down four billion pounds of manna a year. I would never question that God. That is a trillion pounds in the 40 years. I would never turn my back on that God. I'd never go after leeks and cucumbers that they so desired back in Egypt. But as I've grown in my Christian walk and I read the Old Testament, I read the New Testament, and I see the holiness of Jesus Christ, I realize that I am much more like Israel than I am like Jesus Christ. And I think God wants to make us more like Jesus Christ. Little by little by little by little. That should give us great hope. None of us are where we should be. We all want to be further, and we have to do some things to get there, which is what this lesson is going to lead us to. How do I apply this to my life? I realize... Realization needs to come over us. I realize from an in-depth reading of the Word of God that Jesus Christ is 100% faithful to God. And then seeing and viewing that accordingly against my sin, I realize that I am not where I need to be. All right, let's go to John. Who's got John 1 through 4? All right, John 11, 25, 27. We're all familiar with this story. All right, I am the resurrection and the life. And she said, yes, Lord, I believe. John eleven thirty eight, forty four. 44. Yeah, what an exciting portion of Scripture. So what's the point of the Scripture? Have faith. Uh, teach us that Jesus can do miracles. Um, I believe his point to teach us in the most dramatic way about who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus I believe his identity, he is the God-man. Jesus Christ is the God-man. And that is to cause us to believe in him with that identity. So where does this text appear, appear in the storyline? This is the last miracle recorded in the Gospel of John. So this now is the latter part of Jesus Christ's three years of earthly ministry. 
So how does the text point or view Christ the Savior? Well, Jesus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So God, through the Holy Spirit, unveiled to humans, to our spirit, that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the author of resurrected life. If anyone throughout eternity, past, present, or future, has any hope of being resurrected from the dead, it's going to come through the God-man, the finished work that he did, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> that, it that passage, if any other one, should really excite us about hope that we have, and we'll get to that in a minute. But are you resurrected today? I mean, honestly, are you resurrected today? <laughs> How do I apply that to my life? Well, the raising of Lazarus gives us a foretaste of our... I'd be mad if I was Lazarus, wouldn't you? You're dead. I'm assuming you went to glory. He knew Jesus Christ, and God brings him back. Now, he raced all that, obviously, but even if he came back out of glory in heaven to come back to this sin-cursed world, he'd be like, oh, Jesus, why did you resurrect me? We would never do that, though, right? We would never say, Jesus, why did you resurrect me? We won't say that, but we will live like that. We won't say that, but I think if you're like me, we live like that sometime. But talk about hope. So what is hope when you see it in the, in the scriptures? I used to drill this into my family, and I asked them recently, who can, who can text me the, the definition of hope? And it came back right away. Hope is a confident expectation. It's not wishful thinking. When we see hope in the scriptures, it's a confident expectation. I am literally in resurrected life now. I have a confident expectation that because of what Jesus Christ has done, I have everything that I need to life and godliness right here. I have been resurrected to newness of life. And that is a hope. It's a confident expectation that I have. I asked Nance if I could share this, and I'm not going to share the gory details, but Nance and I have gone through as much in fact, I would say more marital struggles, temptations and sin and anger and bitterness and wrath and all of the garbage that two human beings can have towards each other, we have probably gone through more trials and temptation than the average family. Why? Well, because we've been married a long time and I am a horrific sinner. I still do really stupid things in our marriage. We all do. And yet this passage gives me hope, a confident expectation that because of God, he has allowed Nance and I to work through trials and tribulations. In fact, hear this, please. The deepest, darkest trial that Nancy and I went through in our marriage has led to the greatest blessings of all in our marriage. That gives me hope, a confident expectation that God is going to continue to do in our marriage what he wants to do. But it doesn't happen by us just sitting there. <laughs> God didn't resurrect us to just sit and be. It doesn't just happen. Resurrection doesn't just happen. Now, my salvation just happened, 
September 1st of 1987, but actually I was chosen before the foundation of the world. Now God is resurrecting me. He's allowing me. So I'm going to apply this to my life. I'm going to apply hope to my life. I'm going to say, my marriage needs help. I need hope in my marriage. Confident expectation. I need hope in my child training. Confident expectation that God is going to use me and make me into the man that he wants me to do. Seek out counseling. Go to marriage counseling. We have. It's helped us tremendously. Have it not, hon? Go to marriage counseling. Don't be so foolish to think, ooh, I have to live in this. Seek biblical help. Apply it to your life. Apply the resurrection to your life. Resurrect your marriage. The guy that spoke on parenting yesterday, who saw that? Yeah, man, I could watch. I was sitting next to Daniel, and Daniel said, I could, I could, I could listen to that guy forever. High energy guy, and he's just, just exciting. Resurrect your marriage. Apply this. You're not where you want to be. Resurrect your child training. Resurrect it. Those people who are sitting here say, Well, I don't have a wife, I don't have kids. Resurrect your life. Resurrect your friendships. Resurrect hope, confident expectation. God, you will use me today. And trust that he has put confidence in Jesus Christ. If he raised Lazarus from dead after four days when he stunk, he can resurrect us. I don't know what happened in prayer today. Steve and I actually got in there late, but Craig ended with a charge to the worship team. You know... Show, you love Jesus Christ up there. So you're going to be spinning around and jumping and <laughs> hallelujah all around. You know, as a, as a dad, I, 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 I just talked to the girls last night and was giving them, the four of us were in the living room, and I was trying to give them some biblical counsel. And, and I try to do that, and Nance tries to do that, and we were talking to them last night. And, and I, I think, man, I... I thinking about my lesson today, and I'm thinking, God, I hope that you resurrect their attitude in this situation. But I also take my kids, and I also point them to Pastor Craig and Pastor Russell and other godly people. I point them to say, go to them for advice. To their youth leaders, I say, go to your youth leaders. I don't negate my responsibility as a dad. I take it very serious, and Nancy is a mom. But resurrect your children, resurrect your life, resurrect your friendships. That's what God wants us to do. If that doesn't give us hope, people, then perhaps you're not saved. All right, so let's go to Colossians. The best part about all is last, Colossians. Um, did I hand that out? The passage, Colossians 1? All right, let's go to Colossians. If I did, cancel it. Everyone turn to Colossians. Colossians 1, if you've got a Bible or your electric thing. Sorry, Nate. <laughs> Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of, of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. I love his greetings. We always thank God, the Father of Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, and the love 
you have for all the saints because of the hope. Because of the hope. Just talked about that. Laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth that the gospel which has come to you is indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth which has come to you as indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the... Did I just repeat that? Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant, he is a faithful minister of God. That's what I get for walking around and trying to read at the same time. Put it down. Um, just as you learned, verse 7, from Epaphras, our beloved servant, he is faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us the love of the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, spiritual wisdom, and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, that, that's our lives, right? Should be. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. So we're going to zero, on, zero in on 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So where does this text appear in the biblical storyline? Well, it's at the, the end. It's, uh, John the Revelator is going to wrap it up, you know, in 90. But this is, this is at the end of Paul's ministry, and we'll get that in a minute. So, so Paul wants us to, to... I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. What is the point of the text? Paul wants us to give thanks to God the Father for our great salvation. And, and I looked up the word, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Qualified is to make sufficient or to authorize. Now go back and read that. What's the point of the text? Giving thanks to God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. <laughs> thank you, God. Did I mention thank you, God? Thank you, God. Thank you, God. That should be an automatic thing that rolls off our tongue. Thank you, God. Why? Because you have made me sufficient to share in the kingdom of God. Thank you, God. Why? Because you have authorized me to share in the kingdom of God. So God the Father is the one who does the great work, not us. That adds to my hope and my confidence that God can do it. What has he done? He's delivered us, we have redemption, and he's transferred us. Paul here takes us back to Exodus. He links this back to Exodus, which is where we are in the morning service. The imagery relating back to God and his people coming out of Exodus. And Paul intentionally links these two great saving works of God. The Exodus, where God's chosen people were chosen by him and delivered. Listen, they did not know they were in slavery for almost 400 years. It's when there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph that they were placed into slavery. They would have been very, very happy to stay in the land of Goshen 
with their leeks and cucumbers. It wasn't until they realized that they were slaves that they even remotely wanted to be delivered. So Paul intentionally links links these two saving works of God, the Exodus and Jesus Christ. But there's a stark difference. Jesus Christ's saving power is infinite. And that is what Paul is thankful for. Israel missed out on the thankful part. (laughs) They started to think more about themselves. They started to think more about their temple. They started to think more about the Holy of Holies. They started to think more about pride and arrogance and thinking that they were greater than everybody else. So where does this text appear? Did I give out Colossians 4, 3? That's right, I don't have that on there. Write these down, Colossians 4, 3. Is it? Did I hand it out? Okay, those, those passages indicate that Paul was imprisoned during the writing of Colossians. That's what those verses tell us. So this comes at the very end of his life. Paul is just shortly going to, going to be coming. So this comes, this portion of Scripture is coming at the very end of all the incredible doctrine that Paul has been inspired by the Holy Spirit to write to us. So how does this text point to or view Jesus Christ? Paul's theology, clearly linking the Exodus and Jesus Christ and and stringing this deliverance, this redemption, this forgiveness of our sin, and our future inheritance were accomplished completely and wholly by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have I said today the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? We should be thinking on a regular basis about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We should be reading the scriptures and thinking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We should read the Old Testament and be thinking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is typology. This is the doctrine of theological types. Holding that types in the New Testament were prefigured or symbolized by things of the Old Testament. So, in this language, Paul uses typology of the deliverance seen in Exodus and uses its antitype, okay, we looked at that, that being Jesus Christ, to further reveal the complete deliverance from the dominion of sin's slavery and the death it causes. So let's look at some more theological pieces to this. Let's add some pieces. Joshua or Jeremiah 31. 31. All right. If we remember back to the first set we looked at in Jesus Christ, uh, this is speaking about in Jeremiah the coming of the time of the new covenant. And God is going to do something so amazing that the Jews couldn't even figure it out, you know? And 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 Uh, He's going to place within them, within their heart, and you won't have a need for me to teach you the scriptures or Craig to teach you the scriptures or anybody else. You will have, as born-again believers, all the ability you need to understand the scriptures. Praise God, right, everybody? You don't... Now, 
don't take me wrong here, this, the local church is exceptionally important because this is where God is doing his work. But you don't need me to teach you. You can learn all you need to learn by just opening the Bible and letting the Holy Spirit reveal himself to you again and again and again. True believers in Jesus Christ have something far greater than any Old Testament prophet. Now you got to remember that. If you're a true believer today, when you read the Old Testament like I do and I scratch my head, used to scratch my head and say, how could they do that? It's really bad when I scratch my head now because of what we're going to learn next. So who's got 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17? Okay, remember in our first passage, Jesus Christ, the temptation that he went through, that very, uh, the beginning of it, it says, Jesus Christ, full of the Holy Spirit, was able to resist temptation. The God-man, tempted by God far greater than any of us have ever been tempted, okay? The God-man, full of the Holy Spirit, resisted the temptation. In that passage, we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We, when we are full of the Holy Spirit, can indeed resist temptation, and we can indeed not sin. But that's the only way. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Amen. This grants us hope, this confident expectation. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and that, that portion of Scripture says we are sealed with a stamp for security, or preservation. I am so incredibly thankful to God that he saved me, and I have no, 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 no thought that I could lose my salvation because I have the permanent present indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and I have been stamped by God, I have been sealed by God until I'm either raptured or I'm dead. And either way, I gain eternal life. So where do, how do I apply this to my life? This ought to lead us into praise and worship. I, I would love to be able to go up here and play music or to sing music. You don't want me to. Okay? And last time I drummed, uh, I, was, I was a rock and roll drummer, and the last time I drummed, I was drumming for worship, and I kept speeding up. So... I was driving the band. I kept speeding up, and my son would look over at me. He'd be going like this, and I'd come back to the beat, you know? So you don't want me up there. But I would love to go up there. I would love to be able to do what they do up there because I love to worship God. This ought to lead us to be thankful. Praise God for what he's done. Listen, read Exodus, read uh, Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel. You read those, you will get a good glimpse of what happened to Israel. You will see God and you will see yourself. You will see yourself just like Israel. But Paul's language here, he beckons us to give thanks because of the new exodus being experienced in Jesus Christ. All right. Let's imagine that we're in the land of Midian a few thousand years back, which is where Jethro, Moses' father-in-law Jethro lived. 
Okay? We're in the land of Midian in the desert there. And we look out and we see two million people coming with animals our way. And we're like, oh, that looks pretty weird. We go over and we say, hey, what are you doing? We, we found ourselves in the land of Goshen, and our distant memory was that God visited our people. But we had no idea who he was. He didn't visit us for 400 years. And, and then God sent Moses, and, and, and honestly, I didn't even believe Moses at first. And God sent Moses, and, 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 and it, wasn't, it was then that I really realized that I was in sin. I, I, was, I was in slavery. I was in bondage to, to Pharaoh. I, I honestly, we grew up in Goshen, and life was good. But now, all of a sudden, we, were, we realized we were, we were under a hard taskmaster. Pharaoh, he put us, and he made us work hard. And, and it was brutal. It was ugly. And Moses did weird things. And I know this is going to sound freaky, but he told us to take an innocent lamb. And we did it, and we put it on our doorpost. And the guy from Midian's going, you, you're pretty weird. And he said, we put the blood on it, and then you know what? You're going to find this hard to believe, but we woke up the next morning, and Egypt was groaning because all of their firstborn children had died. Now, I, I, I know it sounds weird, but through that process, through that <laughs> that, that innocent lamb, I was delivered out of the hard bondage, the hard taskmaster, the slavery that I was in. And, and now we are literally walking as, as a group. I believe in Jehovah God, and we are on our way to the promised land. Hey, I'll bet you might want to know about Jehovah. I was in sin's slavery. I didn't even know it. For years, I didn't even know I was a sinner. And then someone came along, my wife, whom, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Someone came along, my wife, who was transformed by that innocent Lamb. And because of the changed life in her, I was drawn to Christ. That is what God wants to do with us. He wants to, to have us be glorified from one degree to another, to another, to another, so that we can go out of this room and live for his glory. That is quite a lesson. All right, we're going to pray, and Craig's going to come up. And something out. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the word of God. It is powerful and vibrant and alive. Help it change us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.